Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. So good. So good. Hey, can you guys open your Bibles up to Ephesians 2? Ephesians 2 in the New Testament. We're just going to read from verse 1 before I kind of um, kick into the message this morning. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us who used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, by our very nature we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God, so rich in mercy... And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Jesus Christ. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done so that none of us can boast. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I'm just going to move this. I'm well too short. Kia ora tātou. Ko Rangitoto te maunga. Ko Tindles Bay te awa. No Tamariki Makoro aho. Ko Compton me Cambridge tokofano, ko Naomi Janelle tokoingoa, Morena Coast Vineyard, Morena. <clears throat> well, my husband Mark and I were originally from the North Shore. We used to actually have our summers at Tyndall's Beach. Has anyone been to Tyndall's Beach? best beach on the peninsula. So we both used to summer there with our families, but we didn't know each other at the time. And it turns out the houses that we used to go to were one house apart. So, you know, we were destined for each other. Our kids, um, we've got two little kids, Adley and Jack. They were both born in Wellington. And now we live in the beautiful Oriwa. It is the best place in the world. So we came along to Coast Vineyard for the first time in December last year. And, you know, it was actually a bit of a whirlwind to get here. You know, the way that the wind sort of blows things in no particular logical order and is really annoying and you end up where you never thought you'd be. That's how we landed here. But the Sunday that we arrived, we actually really genuinely felt like we'd hit the jackpot. For a start, it only took two minutes for us to walk here from our home, which is awesome. That's my kind of living. 
But we also met some old friends, Thomas and Caitlin. I used to go to youth group with them back in the day. It was amazing and awesome to have you guys leading this morning, actually. Felt like I was home. Um, and then also a bunch of others here. And then we met some, some new friends and also people who were connected with our whanau sort of back, um, you know, some who used to go to church with my parents and that sort of thing. And we also just felt super welcome. So whoever was here on December um, last year, 2020, go you guys, you're amazing. We just felt so incredibly well hosted. And I just want to, I guess, talk to that a little bit quickly. Whoever else is new here, um, it's a bit of a challenge for us, I think. Like here at Coast Vineyard, there is this incredibly hospitable culture that's embedded in the DNA of this community. And as this church grows and grows faster and faster and there's more and more people who come, it's, you know, if we do nothing else, if we don't join a small group, if we don't join a, worship, a service team in the next sort of few months, one thing that I think we do need to do is is uphold and nourish that culture of hospitality because there's people around you this morning who probably this is their first Sunday as well or this is their second Sunday as well. And so just want to encourage people like me who are new that that's, that's on us to, to be those hospitable people as well. But that's, that's more or less how we arrived this morning. I'm um, oh, sorry, in December. Um, but there's a bit of a story that led up to that Sunday. As Stanley said, we were in Wellington, and in the beginning of 2019, I was still pastoring among a Baptist church there in Karori, and I'd been with them for six years. And at that time, and leading up to even becoming a pastor, I personally had been wrestling with a lot of questions around what does it mean to love Jesus and also to live in this kind of middle-upper-class sort of life, lifestyle? What does that look like? Because I just, I just saw quite a few inconsistencies with the way that the, the world around me told me to live, what it meant to live, what it meant to be an adult, responsible, all those sorts of things, and what I read in the scriptures, what I saw modeled by Christ and by the disciples. And as a young teenager, I remember sitting at the end of my parents' bed, and I was sort of saying to them, you know, I'm not just going to get any job. I'm not just going to work for the sake of having an income. You know, if I'm going to spend all those hours of my week doing the same thing, it's got to mean something more than that. You know, there probably was a bit of a note of idealism in there, this young teenager. But you know, I think, I genuinely think we need our teens to remind us what it's like to be idealistic, what it's like to shoot for the stars rather than to settle. We don't need to settle. But more than idealism, I look back at that young Naomi and I see this girl who was pushing against the narrative of the North Shore culture around work. I wasn't satisfied with that story that had been given to me about what it means to work. And then I remember preaching in 2019 among this church whānau that I'd been a part of for a number of years, and I was talking about the way things are supposed to be, you know, the kind of wholeness we're meant to have, the kind of relationships we're meant to have, the kind of hope we're meant to outwork in our jobs and our communities. And I was near tears as I described this, this kind of life, because I knew that despite our efforts, Mark and my life wasn't even close to looking like that. At the end of the day, our life didn't look that different to our neighbors. It didn't look that different to people who didn't know Jesus, and that broke my heart. Six years of pastoring and the lives of those in our community, our lives were just as influenced by stories of consumerism and individualism and go on and go on. 
as they were by the story of Scripture and the story of God among his people. And soon after that, I finished in my role at KBC, and God called Mark and I into our own version of of wilderness, of the waiting kind of space that Thomas was talking about. And after a whole lot of discernment and questioning and, and pushing against sort of these changes, we did everything that you're not supposed to do as responsible adults. We sold our house, and we didn't buy in the same market. We both left paid work. We didn't have a plan, and whenever we did get a plan, it always got overturned. We had two young kids, no income, and no home. And we felt really dumb. Like, we talked to a bunch of people in that season, and every time we're like, oh, we just look so foolish. And at the same time, we felt excited. You know, there was this one verse in Matthew's gospel that I felt like God had, had sort of promised me, had given to me as we headed into this season. I remember taking it to my spiritual director at the time and said, oh, God's given me this cool verse. Like, it's that one that says, you know, um, seek first the kingdom of God. That's what we're meant to do. Seek first the kingdom of God. And my spiritual director quickly jumped in and said, and what does the next part of the passage say? What does the second part of that passage talk about? And it says, and all these things will be given to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you. The passage is in the context of speaking to worry, speaking about how we worry about what will we eat, what will we wear, all those sorts of questions. And the passage is inviting people to trust to trust in God's provision, in those moments of seeking and waiting to trust that God does genuinely care enough to look after you. He is powerful enough to give you all that you need. But man, trusting that is hard, hey? It's flipping hard. And in the years that followed, we were about to find out something of just how hard that is. We, we lost our identity that year. That sounds pretty extreme, eh? We lost our identity. But in terms of how we define ourselves in New Zealand, we did. We couldn't answer basic questions. What do you do? Where do you live? We don't. Who's your community? We couldn't answer basic things. I remember filling out a form when I was going to this Christian event that a whole bunch of pastors go to, and it asked two questions. One was, what was your role? What is your role? I couldn't answer it. What church are you part of? I remember sitting in front of the screen and I felt defeated by a form. (laughs) That was what my life had become. But you know, despite tears and meltdowns on my part, we we just knew we were were on the right path. It was kind of like we were detoxing from the many aspects of the slipstream of of Western story and culture that, that just really aren't good for any of us. We knew that there was a better way to live life, a better way to approach work, to approach finances, to approach family and neighbourhood and relationships. We just didn't, we didn't know what that looked like or how to get there or if it's, if it's possible. Mark and I, we married in August 2010 and at our wedding, the celebrant spoke from this book of Ephesians. <clears throat> and he was actually a friend of ours, and I remember him being this, just really excited, pumped about the sermon that he was going to bring at our wedding. He's super excited. I've got the right message for you guys. And he was speaking from verse 10 of, of Ephesians 2. And so if you just want to look at that in your Bibles again, Ephesians 2 verse 10, and the verse says, For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things 
He planned for us long ago. And the Greek word translated here as masterpiece is poema. And for that, from that same word, we get the English words poetry or poem. And you know, our friend, he was a theology lecturer, and I think he kind of knew that at the time. And, and he knew that Mark was an artist as well. And so, you know, I thought it was kind of sweet, really, that he'd picked this passage that talked about art, and Mark was an artist. And, and since then, the passage has actually taken on a, a much deeper meaning for me. And I find myself coming back to it time and time again. You know, it was written by Paul the Apostle, the same guy who wrote the, the letter that we heard from last week. Um, and it was probably meant to be a circular letter. You know, it talks about general kind of things. It's got a bit more of a general tone to it. And it was meant to be passed around the different church communities that Paul was connected with. And it's talking about the way Jesus has reoriented life. The way that Jesus has restored life, that coming to know and love Jesus means that we go through this kind of refinement process and, and come into the way we're meant to be, the way things are meant to be. And at the beginning of chapter two, Paul describes the walk or the way of life that people used to have. You know, the ways they were influenced by the stories of the culture of the day or the, the certain codes around status or around um, relationships of the day. And then also about the ways they got stuck into the lies of the devil. On that, have many of you read the Screwtape Letters? The book Screwtape Letters? Yeah, awesome book, hey, from C.S. Lewis. And it gives insight, I think, into the nature and meddling of Satan. Because sometimes we can think it's quite like extreme, you'll see it coming from a mile away. But one quote of that book says this, the devil, Satan, speaking to one of his little demons about how to get people to live into hopelessness, to live empty lives, to live meaningless lives. And he says this, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot with without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Make it bland, make it easy, and they won't know any different. Paul was writing in this letter to awaken and to reorient these church people. To sum it up, Paul was talking about how we are restored in Jesus Christ. We're restored. Life in Christ looks different We've moved out of one story, one understanding, and into a new one. Jesus came into the world to make us fully human. There's two key points I want to pick up on here. And the first is that we are restoried into the way we're meant to be, into God's poema, into his piece of art, into his masterpiece. We are restoried into God's masterpiece. You know, through this last couple of years while I've been doing my master's study and that sort of thing, I've been reading a bunch about arts and faith in the church. And the thing with the arts is that the best art manages to make this pathway through the dense, overgrown scrub of day-to-day -day life. And they lead us into these places of imagination and beauty. And they sometimes have to bush-bash their way through in order to get us there. And in this sense, artwork can be quite prophetic. It can see something more, something better than what we have before us. And it, it notices, it sees what's actually going on and is unsatisfied with it and wants to push beyond it. The best art reorients its audience toward the way things are meant to be. 
And a lot of the time it does that by being this, like a taste of beauty. Like you know that moment when you see this just incredible painting or you hear an amazing spoken word poet or an incredible rapper or you, you, for me it's when I hear the tenor saxophone being played the way it's meant to be played. Oh, there's just something special in that moment that happens, something that lands for us in that moment. Like all the pieces of the puzzles of life come together just for the split second and there's this sense of, yeah, that's it. And then they float back into their chaotic orbit again. In a good heart, it gives us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like, of the way life is meant to feel, what it's meant to feel like and look like in the kingdom of God, when things are the way they're meant to be. And Ephesians 2 says that's us. We are God's masterpiece. We are God's art piece, his poem for the world and in the world. Is that how you understand your life? You are God's masterpiece. We, together, are God's masterpiece. This prophetic and beautiful taste of what life is meant to look like, what it's meant to feel like to be human. We're restoried in Christ into who we're supposed to be. And the second point is that we're restoried into what we're supposed to do, what we're meant to be doing <clears throat> excuse me, with our lives. Paul writes that we are created new in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And if you've grown up in the church or if you've grown up around church and Christianity, there's a chance that you're a bit like I used to be. And when you hear that phrase, good works, your mind goes straight to morality, created for, you know, doing good things, being a good person, don't sin all the time, all that sort of stuff. But the thing is, that's just not what I think Paul has in mind here. You know, just pre preceding this passage, he's talked about how you haven't got there on your own. It's by grace alone. No one can boast. He's not talking, I don't think, about that. His vision of good works is so much bigger than that, so much more exciting than that and satisfying than that. At the beginning of the letter, chapter one gives us a bit more of context for this idea of good works that we're meant to do with our lives. And in verse, in verse 7 to 10 in chapter 1, it says this, With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure or his good plan that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the good plan, the good work that God is up to. In Revelation 21, there's this astoundingly beautiful passage set in the throne room of God, and the one who's seated on the throne says, See, I am making all things new. <clears throat> That's the context for good works. Making all things new gathering up all of life and, and all that we do and all that others do and how we understand ourselves and how others understand themselves, gathering it all up into the love and life and reign of Jesus Christ. That's what we're meant to be doing with our lives. And so with that in mind, Paul is writing to these church people and reminding them that the story of their lives is now about restoring the day-to-day -day world around them restoring who they understand themselves to be and who others understand themselves to be and everything 
back into the way it's meant to be, towards the way it's meant to be, restoring every day, infusing everything with the meaning it's meant to have. Which means that everything is up for grabs. Every part of your world, every relationship, everything you do, every community you're part of, every sport you play, every, everything is to be restored into the love and life of Jesus Christ. So what might it look like to restory your everyday? What does it look like? Think of your work. Think of your day-to-day lives, whether you're at home, whether you're in the office, whether you're building, whatever you're doing, what does it mean? What is that story? What does it mean to work? What does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean to play sport? Has anyone read um, Andy Crouch's work? Anyone heard of Andy Crouch? Some of you? Yeah, he writes this book called Culture Making. Culture Making is this great book. I'd encourage you to read it. And he talks a lot about this, about the church actively involved in shaping the everyday culture around us. And Crouch makes the crucial point that if we want to see culture shift in the West, you know, if we want our young people to feel belonging instead of loneliness, you know, if we want our young people to feel peace instead of anxiety, if we want our old people to feel valued and necessary instead of feeling like they're a drain on society and a burden on their family, if we want to have green places and waterways that are cared for, if we want to have marriages that are inspirational and healthy and flourishing, if we want to have neighbourhoods that know each other, that look out for each other, that care for each other, if we want that, if there's any part of us that aches for that, then we have work to do. Good work. Crouch says that in order to change culture, we must create more of it. To change culture, we must create more of it. It's not enough. It doesn't work to speak against culture. Because people will carry on with what they've got, whether they're happy with it or not, people will carry on with it until they're given something better. And the church, we, are called to create something better. We're the ones called to live and work and play in ways that restory the world around us. One commentator sums it up that we don't necessarily make the world a glorious place. We remind the world that it is a glorious place. One of you, um, sorry, some of you might have heard the name Dorothy Sayers. Anyone? Yep, Dorothy Sayers. She wrote a fair bit about Christian um, in the workplace in the sort of early 1900s in England. And again, her voice brings clarity around what I think is meant here by good works. And one of her quotes says this. Bear with me, close your eyes if it helps to listen. This is her quote. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. The very first demand that the church should make on the intelligent carpenter 
is that he should make good tables, the best tables. You know, it makes me think of the leaky house syndrome in New Zealand. You know, where were the people making good houses, making good materials, making the best homes? You know, in a world of cutting corners and maximum profit, what does restoring your work context look like? Creating new culture that says, this is the way it's meant to be. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like good tables. It looks like beautiful food. It looks like kindness. It looks like servant-heartedness despite rank. It looks like honesty to stakeholders. It looks like community. In my cohort for my masters, there's a group of us who've been drawn together from around the world. And there's this one guy based in Canada. He's a lawyer. And he shares a bit about his attempt at creating culture in his law firm. They have this shared office space with a bunch of different organizations there. And it's just a really toxic us versus them kind of culture going on. Some of you might have, you know, come up against that from time to time. And there's this corner office up for grabs. And instead of him taking it, he decides that actually its location is the perfect space to create a, com- a common area, to create a space for bump, bump spaces for these workers to come in contact with each other. And he saw it as his responsibility and an opportunity before him to create community, to create a new culture, a new way in this workspace. Now, Cecily Saunders is another culture writer. Has anyone heard of Cecily Saunders? She is the founder of Modern Day Hospice. Her career, <clears throat> excuse me, her career started in medicine, and um, it was at a time in history when curing people became the new thing. You know, when doctors realised that actually they could stop people dying. So we may as well focus on that. Let's not focus on the dying people. Let's focus on the ones who we can make well. And Cecily poured her life into those who were at the end of their end of their time. And she made a place, a physical space, and maximized technology, medicine, in order to care for the dying and to make those moments of death the most extraordinary moments for those people who were dying and their family around them. She swam stubbornly and riskily against the culture story of her day. And she created new culture, new culture that still outlives her, right? It's still here today. We have hospices all around the globe that care for the dying, that dignify and rehumanize those who are dying. When we find ourselves in the story of Jesus and in the fullness of what it means to be human, it feels like coming home, like to that place where you can stand, your Turanga Waiwai, this is who I am, this is what I'm created for. And perhaps the churches that Paul was writing to in Ephesians, perhaps they knew this, you know, perhaps they had this sorted. But as we carry on in the letter, we see he just keeps going on about it, you know. He keeps reminding them and prompting them and telling them. And so chances are that they were actually hopping between the old story and the new story. They kept going back and forth and back and forth. Does that sound familiar? It does for me. No, to restory life both inside us and around us, it takes discipline and it requires other people. You know, one moment we think we've finally got it sorted. You know, we're on top of the self-esteem thing, we're on top of those bursts of anger, we know what we're doing and where we're going and then the next minute, 
we're just back at square one again. Another author, James K.A. Smith, writes this book called You Are What You Love. You are what you love. What do you love? I'm just going to take a sip of water while we think. In his book, Smith uses the language of liturgy and rehabituation, saying that the church must step into rhythms of practice and discipline that rehabituate us toward what we're made to love, that rehabituate us back into the story of Jesus. Now, over the last couple of years of transition and with all the upheaval of COVID in our lives and in the church and, and the disorientation that's kind of gone on, I've thought a lot about the Israelites in the wilderness and that sort of disorientation as they're uprooted from Egypt and, and moved towards the promised land. And they've been living in Egypt as slaves for a long time and God freed them from Pharaoh and, and wanted to lead them into the promised land, right? That was the aim. And meanwhile... The Israelites are all too scared and small-minded to trust God. And so they ended up roaming the wilderness for 40 years, 40 years longer than they probably needed to. They were lost. And not only had they physically lost their way, they'd lost their way in their hearts and in their heads and therefore in their way of life, in their day-to-day, they were lost. And then God gets them to create the tabernacle. That beautiful, majestic worship tent, which reminds them, reminds them of who God is, reminds them of who they are, and reminds them of what story they belong in. It becomes the central place in their lives, literally. They, they all camped around it. It created everyday culture. Everyday life for the Israelites was around the tabernacle, was oriented according to the habits and practices of this worship of God together in and through the tabernacle. The daily rhythms, the weekly rhythms that we have in our lives are the deciding factor for what story we live out of. The culture that you create for yourself in your home in your workplace, as you drive to work, all those things, they are what restore us. Jacinda spoke the other week about the Sabbath and about slowness. One professor of mine talked about Sabbath as he likened it to when he goes to bed at night, like he's working on something, he's got a deadline pressing in on him, and he chooses, no, I'm not going to stay up till 4 a.m., I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to get some healthy sleep and trust that actually God is with me in this. God cares about this and I'm going to lay it down, trust him and let him help me, let him be present in my work. And so we're not going to talk heaps about rhythms and practices, but I want to encourage you this morning that if you haven't thought much about that lately, today is a great time to think of one thing, one thing that you can stop or one thing that you can start that's, that's achievable for you, to help restory you and, and the world around you into the story of Christ. And the other thing is, is the people that we surround ourselves with. You know, the people that we surround ourselves with, they help restore us. 
or they help keep us in the old story. You've heard about with social media, you know, surrounding yourself on social media who, who agree with you, sure, but those who disagree with you to prevent this kind of echo chamber that happens. And it's the same in, in real life, you know, not just virtual life. Surrounding yourself with people who, who you love who don't necessarily agree with you. And walking alongside, choosing to live that tension together and shape one another. But there's a third essential part of restoring, the rhythms, the people, and then one more thing that I don't really, I don't hear touched on that much. Um, you see, not only did the tabernacle create rhythms to people's weeks, not only did it become this catalyst for bringing community together and being raw and honest, the tabernacle itself was a work of art. The tabernacle was a work of art. It was beautiful. Skilled artisans were called on to make the structure and the artifacts within it excellent and breathtaking. The materials used, the dimensions of it, the imagery, they all told a story. They were windows for the Israelites to look through and into the nature and story of God. And the artists were the ones who made something physical who took this imagination of God and made something breathtaking and mysterious, which ultimately changed the way that life was lived. It changed the way life was understood for the Israelites. There's this incredible man named Steve Garber, and he's written a great book, Visions of Vocation. Visions of Vocation. And in it, he talks about the role of artists in society. And he says this, artists get there first. Artists get there first. More often than not, it's artists who create avenues and communicate insights that go on to shape culture. Now, for the Israelites, the artisans brought the imagination of God into a reality that people could see and touch and smell, and it changed. It changed everything about the culture and the life they lived, the story they were a part of. You know, I don't, I don't think we really know what to do with arts in Western culture. And especially within the church. You know, our culture makes it incredibly difficult, almost impossible, for artists to work in their vocation, even as a side job. Even once they're finished, you know, earning their own wage and doing the taxi driving or the cafe working or whatever it is. But the arts are integral to restoring every day. They're needed, they're necessary. If you're an artist, you're needed, you're necessary. Your work is essential to restory our everyday. It takes us back to the word poema, poetry, art. God is the great artist creating masterpieces. And just as we are masterpieces created to point people to the way things are meant to be, to the way things feel and look like, to something better, to something more life-giving, the arts do a similar thing. And I totally believe that everyone has imagination, that everyone can create beauty, but artists are gifted and called to practice this as their everyday vocation. Artists are gifted to notice one speaker describes it as a poetic eye, those who see the unseen, who notice the unnoticed and point it out to the rest of us. 
and those who can create beauty. And so in our figuring out what it looks like to create new stories, to restory our realities, we need our imaginations to be developed. We need to encounter beauty that gives us this glimpse of the way things are meant to look. Like when you're doing a puzzle, you know, and you look at the lid every now and then, you're like, oh yeah, that's what it's meant to look like. And then you go back to building it. And then you're like, oh no, I forgot it. I'm going to look again. We need that. Our imagination, oh yeah, that's what it's meant to feel like. That's what it's meant to look like. It's more than what's in front of me. There's more order. There's more beauty than what I can see before me. And that's the role of artists. They help the rest of us to grow in the practice of imagination and connecting with God's imagination. And the more that I've read and talked with people, the more I've understood their context, their relationships, their heartbreak, their disorder in their own lives, their friendships, the more I'm convinced that we, most of us, probably not all of us, but we, including me, are failing to see a story that's bigger than the one that society gives us the more I'm convinced that we need our imagination to be reignited. We need our hunger for beauty to be nourished. And so we need, I think, our artists to become artists, to be artists among us. Now, imagination assumes that there's a much bigger story at play. It assumes that God is actively involved. So think how imagination could restore your work. What good work could you do with the resources that your organisation has that hasn't been done yet? What's possible? What kind of culture could you have in your home with your friends? What's possible? Imagination and beauty help us discover the story of Jesus I want to leave you this morning with a couple of questions to reflect on. And I'm going to just invite um, the musos to come up now. And I just want to think about a couple of things here. The first is what needs restoring in your life? What needs to be gathered into the life of Christ to become more as it's meant to be? Maybe it's something to do with your work. Maybe it's to do with your marriage. Maybe it's to do with a friend. Maybe it's to do with your own self-belief. What is something in your world at the moment that needs restoring, that needs to come into a place where it's the way it's meant to be? What needs restoring? And the second question is, where is a place that will inspire imagination for you? Or who are the people in your life who will inspire imagination for you? Who help you to to think, to dream? What does that look like? What does it even look like for things to look different, for things to look better? What is possible here? I've been working on a, a bit of a project myself lately called The Beauty of Dust, and it's about sort of bringing the work of artists into the everyday. And as I've been doing that, I've been working well beyond my comfort zone and um, lots of things that other people would do a lot better than I can. But there's this sense of, of feeling called to create something, to create a culture 
that is different, that is more. And there's a quote by Crouch, Andy Crouch, that stuck with me as I've been doing this. And I just wanted to leave it as a bit of an encouragement for you to sort of offer you on as you're like, oh, well, I couldn't do that, or that's not really possible, or this is easier, or whatever it is. And the quote that he said that I just have reverberating around in my head is, our creativity will be called for. And we will find a divine wind at our back whenever we discover a place where the current horizons deprive people of their full humanity. We will discover a divine wind at our back when we create and restore. I just wanna pray as I finish up from Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. I pray that from His glorious, unlimited resources, He will empower you with inner strength through His Spirit. Then Christ will make His home in your hearts as you trust in Him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able through His mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to Him in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We're just going to take a moment now to reflect on those two questions or on anything else that God's brought to your heart this morning. What needs restoring? What needs restoring? And where can you place yourself today or tomorrow or this week to inspire to ignite imagination, to remind you this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Thanks again for tuning in to today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. If you're keen to find out more about us as a church whānau, you're welcome to go to coast.org.nz or of course we'd love to meet you in person. We meet at 10am at Aurewa College on the beautiful Hibiscus Coast and you're more than welcome. Be blessed and have a great day.